I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Rita Redberg, a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and editor of the Archives of Internal Medicine. We're discussing the approval process for medical devices in the United States and in Europe. Dr. Redberg, in a perspective article last year, you questioned the extensive use of the FDA's 510K approval process for medical devices. By that process, a device need only be deemed substantially equivalent to an already marketed device, a predicate, and no clinical data are required. You suggested in that article that the FDA's processes are not always thorough enough. But in two more recent journal articles, one by Kramer et al. and one by Basu et al., the criticism that the FDA is in fact too thorough is raised, that the FDA is too slow, especially as compared with Europe. How do you respond to that sort of assessment of the U.S. system? So I think it's important to separate what takes the time at the FDA for approvals. I I think everyone wants the FDA to only permit safe and effective devices onto our market because their mission is to protect the public health. And that would be part of the mission, allowing safe and effective devices. So I think time that is needed to be sure devices are safe and effective is important and can't be sacrificed. And I think in particular, that is true for high-risk devices and class three devices, which I'll come back to in a moment. But I think the criticisms of the process being slow can also stem from the fact that the FDA is understaffed and underfunded and has a higher turnover than they would like. And that means that the actual reviews can take more time than is optimal because staff may change and then the new staff has to get up to speed or there may not be enough staff. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of staff to do a good review. So certainly better funding the FDA review process, particularly for high-risk devices, would speed the approval of safe and effective devices. And I think that would be a great thing. I don't think that we can shorten the approval time by not being sure that devices are safe and effective before approving them. So can you give some examples of devices where the uh, the 510K process resulted in problems? Sure. And that's when I said I would come back to it. A, A lot of the problems are now that the 510K process is being used for high risk or class three devices, and it was not intended to be used for class three devices. Congress made it quite clear when the Device Act was passed in 1976 that high risk devices should undergo a process to assure safety and effectiveness. And as the Institute of Medicine report concluded last summer, There is no way for the 510K process to assure safety and effectiveness, and safety and effectiveness is not a criteria for 510K clearance. The only thing the 510K process does is say that your device is substantially equivalent to some other device, and the other device can be a device that has been recalled. It can be not actually like one other device, but like five other devices, some of which may not even be used because they were ineffective but they could still be cleared by the FDA. And currently, there are a number of high-risk devices that have gone on the market through the 510K. A very um, prominent example currently is metal-on-metal hips, which Greg Kerfman and I, in that perspective that you mentioned last year, had mentioned. That's a device that got onto the market without any clinical testing. It was implanted in hundreds of thousands of people worldwide It's found to be unsafe. The revision rate is estimated due to data from Australia and Britain, because we 
are still waiting for U.S. data, but the revision rate has been about 50% over six years. It was being marketed for people that were young because the manufacturers and orthopedic surgeons felt that this was appropriate for younger people because it would last longer. But no clinical trials, and it went through a 510K clearance. Another example would be um, IVC filters. You know, in Archives of Internal Medicine published a paper two years ago where it um, was found that for some particular IVC filters, there was a 25% rate of fracture and embolization. And some of those presumably led to serious adverse events and, and death. They were pericardial punctures, and a lot of people were dead, and it wasn't clear. That also went through 510K. The day that that report was published, the FDA issued a warning saying these are retrievable filters, and it turned out that only 7% are actually retrieved. So we think what probably happened is that they just weren't meant to withstand you know, being in the body for more than six months or so, which is all they were meant to be put in for, but they weren't being followed and they weren't being removed. And so IVC filters is another example of a 510K clearance for a high-risk device that led to problems. There was never any clinical studies of those filters prior to their clearance. And so aside from the question that they were fracturing and embolizing, we don't really know that the people that were getting them were actually better off with them than without them. And there were a lot of suggestions from other work that they're being used inappropriately in a lot of patients, and they're, they're being used in patients that could have gotten anticoagulation and really don't need a filter. Kramer and colleagues in their article argue not only that the FDA approval process is more thorough than the European process, but also that it's better coordinated and more transparent. That doesn't seem to be altogether what you're saying. Do you agree that that's the case? That the U.S. process is more transparent and coordinated. Well, compared to Europe, I think that there are definitely aspects. Well, first of all, we have the FDA, which certainly is a central body. And so in that sense, we are more coordinated than European Union because the European Union has a system of competent authorities in each country, but they don't have a centralized database, for example, for recording safety data. And the, the competent authorities are actually dependent on what are called notified bodies to do the actual clearance of high-risk devices. And those differ from country to country, and those are independent third-party reviews. And there is more transparency because in the U.S., the summaries after a device is approved are put on the FDA website. Those are called the Summary of Safety and Effectiveness. Um, they're written generally by the manufacturer, and they're may not be complete, but they are a summary of what the FDA made the decision on, and it is publicly available. That does not happen routinely in Europe. So there is definitely more transparency and more coordination in the U.S. You know, we could certainly talk later, if you want, about areas where there could be even more coordination and transparency, but I would say compared to the EU, it's true that there is more here. Are those the central characteristics and what we should be looking for in device approval? Well, I think the central characteristic to a device approval first is that the device is safe and effective compared to not using the device, whatever the alternative is. And then that the decision that was made on certainly should be transparent and that we should be able to also track, again, transparently how the device is used after approval because in general, device studies are much smaller than, for example, drug studies. Device studies usually only have a few hundred patients, where drug studies are generally several thousand. Um, in some work I did with Sanket Druva, one of my colleagues a few years ago, we found that 
the average follow-up time for device studies was you know, six months to a year. And so devices, particularly implanted devices, are in for a lifetime. And so it's important to see how something performs over a lifetime. And also that most, two-thirds of devices, are actually approved on the basis of only one study, where drugs are always approved on the basis of two randomized trials and that devices are often approved, even high-risk devices that go through our most stringent approval process, which is pre-market approval, are approved without a randomized control trial. They're approved based on observational data or single-arm studies that don't have a control group. And so certainly transparency and coordination would help, but I think the quality of the data, both pre-market and post-market to assure safety and effectiveness is the most important thing in approving devices. The other article that we published recently, the Basu article, shows that although the European approval often precedes U.S. approval, there's essentially no difference in the time it takes to get the device to a patient, since decisions about insurance coverage tend to take longer in Europe. Can you tell us a bit about the coverage decision process in the United States, at least the public part? What goes into a review by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and what do you think should be involved in those reviews? Sure, that's a good question. And um, as it was pointed out in the article, about one-fifth of Americans are covered by Medicare, and about two-thirds of Americans are covered by private insurance in this country. And that, in general, we think that private insurers tend to follow Medicare decisions. So Medicare has two main mechanisms for covering a device. One is called a national coverage decision, and a national coverage decision happens for only very few devices. It usually gets advice from the Medicare Evidence Development and Coverage Advisory Committee, which I must say I, I currently chair. And the national coverage decision is usually because a manufacturer requested it. There may be some more controversy. For example, carotid stents was the subject of a recent meeting of the Medicare Coverage Committee. And the national coverage decision is done on the basis of an evidence review. Usually it's contracted out through ARC and ARC contracts to one of the evidence-based practice centers. They do an evidence review. And then the committee reviews all of that data as well as a series of questions that relate to the quality of the evidence and how sufficient the evidence is in order to answer questions about outcomes. Presumably, that would affect Medicare beneficiaries, although one of the things that has been noticed, and again, I, I looked at with Sanka Druva, was how commonly the coverage decisions are made on the basis of clinical trials that have participants that reflect the Medicare beneficiary population, because of course Medicare beneficiaries are mostly over 65 and mostly women, because women live longer than men in this country. But the clinical trials actually that Medicare reviews in order to make their coverage decisions are done in mostly men and mostly in middle-aged men. And so there has been some effort more recently and noted in a perspective published in the New England Journal two years ago on CT colonography, an effort to more specifically look at a population that reflects the Medicare beneficiary population when Medicare is reviewing a coverage decision. And so that is generally the process for a national coverage decision, although I have to say that, for example, with cardiac CT, which was the subject of a Medicare coverage committee meeting in 2006, the committee voted that there was insufficient data to suggest outcomes benefit for cardiac CT. And Medicare chose not to issue a national coverage decision after that meeting. And when Medicare does not issue a national coverage decision, or if they never even have a meeting, which is even more common than having a meeting but not issuing a decision, 
Then it goes to regional carriers. And so most coverage decisions are made by regional carriers. And the regional carriers, there's like 44 or so around the country. And they're, they're not exactly geographic. They have a very funny history. But the regional carriers will they don't have a formal evidence review process, and most commonly they will consult with experts in the area and then decide on coverage on that basis. And so that is how Medicare generally does its coverage. And then the private insurers often have medical advisory panels that will usually go through an evidence review. They generally tend to follow Medicare, but not always, and there have been examples uh, recently for example, Avastin was a fairly controversial decision where the FDA withdrew approval of Avastin for a metastatic breast cancer, a drug, not a device. But Medicare said they would continue to pay for it even though the FDA had withdrawn approval. There are some private insurance companies that have said they would not because it's no longer FDA approved for that purpose. But in general, private insurance will follow FDA approval and fairly quickly. I sit on the California Technology Assessment Forum, which is advisory to Blue Shields of California. And very commonly, manufacturers or physician professional societies will come to the forum and say, this device was FDA approved, so that means the Blue Shield of California should start paying for it. But actually, the FDA criteria is safe and effective. The Medicare and most insurance criteria is reasonable and necessary. And those are not exactly the same. So while it generally follows FDA approval, there are cases where it does not. Another major issue, as you have said, is post-marketing surveillance of medical devices. Are there good systems in place in the United States or in Europe for following patients who receive medical devices, especially implantable devices? and for tracking their safety and their continued efficacy? I think that um, post-marketing surveillance is very important, as I said, for devices, because devices, particularly cardiac devices, which I look a lot at, and orthopedic devices, which are a lot of the devices that are currently in use and are increasing in use, are often implanted and therefore expected to be used for a lifetime. And the only way to really get data, certainly the long-term data, because the pre-market studies, if they were done, are generally about a year or so, is to have post-marketing registries. And for example, the metal on metal hip, although that was a 510k clearance, we relied on post-marketing data from other countries because currently our post-marketing surveillance is fairly weak. There is a system called MOD, which is the manufacturer's adverse device reporting system. And you know the sites that put in devices are required to report adverse events. I think it's widely agreed that they're very highly underreported. Only a small percentage of adverse events are actually reported. It is at the discretion of the manufacturer to decide whether the adverse event was associated with the device or not. And then the data that is reported in that mod is fairly limited. And so I think there is widespread agreement that we need better post-marketing surveillance in this country to track the many devices that are put in. There are efforts like the National Cardiovascular Data Registry, which looks at, for example, stents and ICDs, which is a great system, although it is not a publicly accessible system. So you can request the data and perhaps get it or perhaps not. Um, so it's a good start, but it's we really need publicly accessible, easy to use adverse event reporting systems to track the hundreds of thousands of devices because otherwise there's really no way for us to know 
if Americans are being helped or harmed by devices after they're implanted because we use them in a lot more people and a lot broader population than they were studied in pre-market. The Medical Device User Fee Act was recently reauthorized, and that substantially increases the user fees that medical device companies pay the FDA to review their applications. More funding, of course, has its benefits, but there's also been concern about conflicts of interest where manufacturers are footing at least part of the bill. How do you think increased user fees will affect the medical device approval process? Well, it's estimated currently that user fees make up about 20% of the medical device overall budget, which is a smaller percentage than on the drug side. They're much actually smaller fees, much smaller than on the drug side. And so on one hand, the FDA, as I said, really needs more money in order to do reviews. But you're right that there is some problem if they feel sort of beholden to manufacturers for supporting the review process, there is a lot of pressure to do very fast reviews. I mean, of course, you know, we all want innovative devices on the market as quickly as possible, but I think we only want innovative devices on the market that have been shown to be safe and effective. And as I said earlier, that takes a little time. And so there tends to be a lot of pressure from manufacturers, and perhaps more so when they're they're paying part of the bill, although really only 20%, to demand fast review times, period, not fast review times after safety and effectiveness has been established, and that, that would be a problem. It's certainly understandable that a company, particularly small startups, and some of these are, you know, it, it costs money until their device gets on the market, and then they're able to show a profit. But it's important not to sacrifice safety and effectiveness review, and the concern is that the FDA starts feeling that they're answering to the manufacturers instead of answering to the public. And I think the concern is, you know, FDA is a public health agency. Its mission is to protect the public health of Americans. Its mission is not to create jobs. And, you know, in the recent Congress and the passage of the uh, Medical Device User Fee Act that you mentioned, it was renamed in the House as the something, the Job Creation Act. I mean, that is not the role of the FDA. It, it's not there to create jobs. The FDA is there to protect the public health of Americans. And certainly, as Greg Kerfman and I wrote last year in the New England Journal, it is not a good idea to create jobs for manufacturing by making dangerous devices. We want to make safe and effective devices. Conflict of interest is a big issue, not just on the manufacturing side, but also on the advisory panels for the FDA. Getting back to the topic you discussed a moment ago, following devices through their, their lifetime, the new User Fee Act also mandates that implantable devices have a unique identifier. Can you explain the purpose of that provision and how that is going to help? Sure. So the unique device identifier, um, which did go through in the version of the bill that has now passed both houses, means that with each device that is implanted, it will have essentially a barcode, is my understanding of it, so that each device could be identified and tracked. And that would occur over a seven-year period to allow, I think, industry to start changing manufacturing processes to have unique device identifiers. And so that's a great step forward. Of course, it has to be um, also that that data is used, so we would be able to track devices better, but we still would need publicly available, accessible, and hopefully mandated registries so that that information is actually in a fashion that we can use it. So it will give us the ability, like for example, with some of the 
ICD lead recalls. It was very hard for some places to track down their patients that had recalled devices. You know, when you recall a lead, it's not like, you know, you have to get a hold of all your patients, and if you don't know who got which model and which make number, it's, it's hard to contact those patients. And so the idea is that it would allow us to better track patients and devices, but it has to be in a form where it would actually be used and reported. So it was certainly a good step. As I said, it will be phased in over the next few years, and hopefully it will be used and will improve device tracking. Going forward, how do you believe we should be thinking about further modifications to the FDA approval process? So I think um, going forward, the most important modifications to our review process are really the ones to assure safety and effectiveness while not sacrificing innovation. And I think that's certainly possible. I mean, we need a well-funded FDA in order to do that because, as I said, to speed up review times without sacrificing safety and effectiveness means you have to have more staff. I mean, I think part of the FDA limitation and Some people have suggested part of the reason why high-risk devices go through a 510K clearance is because it takes less staff and it's cheaper for the FDA. It takes a lot more time to review a pre-market application. And so I do think the FDA needs more funding. And then I think we need to be sure that high-risk devices have clinical data of safety and effectiveness. I don't think we should be doing 510K clearances as we currently are for high-risk devices. I think we have to have clinical data, and the clinical data should be high-quality data, so randomized clinical trials. You know, there is objections that some say, well, devices are not like drugs, and so you can't always randomize, you can't always blind. And in some cases, that may be true, but for example, we could be doing a lot more randomized clinical trials with real controls than we're currently doing. I mean, most devices now, even the ones that go through the most stringent pathway, don't have randomized clinical trial data to back them up. And so I think we need to improve our pre-market clinical trial data and not approve any high-risk devices without clinical trial data of safety and effectiveness, and also to improve our post-marketing surveillance so that we are tracking And the FDA is reporting monthly, for example, on the FDA website. They have an FDA track and publicly available website where you can report how many devices were put in, who got them, and make the adverse events publicly available. The last thing, in the um, User Fee Act, the one that just passed, there is mandate now for a year from now, the secretary has to start reporting on demographic characteristics of patients studied in the clinical trials for devices as well as patients who are getting the devices. I think that's a big step forward as well. I think that currently the FDA says that women and minorities have to be included in the numbers in clinical trials that are represented in the disease that the device is treating. However, routinely that requirement is ignored. And so I think that going forward, more attention, public reporting of demographic information and refusal to review applications that don't meet the FDA requirements for demographics inclusion of women would be a big step forward in being sure that we're approving devices that are safe and effective for all Americans, so equally effective for men and women, because there are a lot of sex differences in risks and benefits, particularly in devices. Women have different side effect profiles, and I think it's important that we have better information on men and women, pre-market and post-market going forward. Thank you, Dr. Redberg. Thank you, Dr. Morrissey.